So this is the fourth and final session of the book of Acts, uh, the very first two chapters. And today we're looking at the second half of chapter two, picking up with Acts chapter two, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. So it's quite a lot to cover uh, in just a few minutes today. So this is uh, taking place the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit have occurred. We're uh, in the day of the festival of Pentecost, which there was thousands of people in, in Jerusalem had gathered. It was primarily a festival to celebrate the covenant blessings of the Lord, uh, thanksgiving towards him, uh, his provision, and, the, uh, and so on. So uh, Peter stands up and gives echo or voice. Uh, he proclaims what is being seen and heard. Well, what are they seeing? They're seeing and hearing people pray in tongues in the languages of the nations. They're hearing their own languages spoken of. They're hearing people declare the wonderful works of God in his son, Jesus. So Peter now gives up, gets up and gives an explanation. In verse 14, he says, You who are Jews, indeed all of you staying in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. And then he quotes the prophet Joel, the Old Testament. Joel was one of the prophets who spoke of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. He quotes Joel for, in verse 17, it will come to pass in the last days, God says, I'll pour out a portion of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. <clears throat> Up until this point, of course, the Holy Spirit was reserved to just a few handful of people, priests, prophets, and kings. And, uh, but, there was a, but the prophecies spoke upon the Holy Spirit being available to all people when the Messiah will come. So Peter stands up with the 11, and he is the spokesman for the 11, which he takes his rightful place, as we would say today, the first pope. Um, and then he signals the, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the arrival of the last days. Last days doesn't mean the end time as if Jesus is coming back today. It means that when Jesus came into the earth, his passion, his death, his resurrection, and the outpouring of the Spirit, the last days, meaning that this is the final period of what the Lord was going to do to restore uh, his likeness and image in the hearts of men through the Holy Spirit. I'll pour out a portion of my spirit upon all flesh. <clears throat> and so prophets, judges, and kings received a portion of the Holy Spirit, but not the whole people. And of course, it was always the intuition in the Old Testament to look for that time in which the Lord would pour out his spirit upon all all people, Joel being a very strong um, spokesman for that. <clears throat> so notice the category of people he speaks about, men and women, old and young, slaves and free, who will be manifest prophetic words and visions and dreams, and they shall prophesy, meaning inspired speech. Uh, so with the disciples of the Pentecost was prophecy, it was inspired speech in tongues. For them, it was probably just the gift of tongues, but for those that I gathered that day, it was tongues with uh, interpretation, meaning declaring the works of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit lives in every single Christian who is baptized. Uh, Philip's four virgin daughters were gifted with prophecy, Acts chapter one, verse twenty, Acts chapter twenty-one, verse nine. Um, prophecy is a declaring of the Lord's work, a declaring of His heart. Uh, in a way that calls men and women to conversion, to repentance, uh, to really commit in a greater way to what the Lord is doing. Let's take a look at Peter for just a moment. In 
1998, John Paul II got up at Pentecost, on Pentecost vigil amidst 500,000 pilgrims, and he said the church's rediscovery of the charismatic heritage at the Second Vatican Council. He went on to say, whenever the Spirit intervenes, he leaves people astonished. He brings about events of amazing newness. He radically changes persons and histories. Uh, so there was, John Paul was saying there's a rediscovery of the charismatic dimension of the church. As a matter of fact, he calls it one of her constitutive elements, meaning foundational elements. I, I quote, um, actually, from, he's quoting from the Second Vatican Council, it's not only through the sacraments and the administrations of the church that the Holy Spirit makes holy the people. He leads them and enriches them with his virtues, allotting his gifts according as he wills. He distributes special graces among the faithful of every rank. And the purpose of those special graces, meaning charismatic gifts, are to renew and build up the church. Then he said on that same speech, that same sermon, open yourselves docilely to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, accept gratefully and obediently the charisms which the Spirit never ceases to bestow on us. Do not forget that every charism is given for the common good, that is, for the benefit of the whole church. And then he's, he, a great prayer rises up. He says, come, Holy Spirit, come and renew the face of the earth. Come, Holy Spirit, ever and make ever more fruitful the charisms you have bestowed on us. So here is Peter in our current day declaring the charisms, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for the whole church, for the building up of the whole people of God. Okay, so we move on now a little bit to verses 19 and 20 in the book of Acts. And uh, again, quoting from Joel 3, I will work wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth. Uh, the wonders and signs recall the miracles the Lord worked in, in Exodus, in uh, Exodus chapter 7 and so on, with Moses to free the Israelites from slavery. Also, it's a reminder of the miracles that were worked in Jesus' ministry. I often like to say the tsunami of signs and wonders and healings. So, um, so what, what is being spoken about there is the Lord's intervention and the demonstration of the Lord's power at work. Joel uses language like blood, fire, cloud of smoke, the sun being turned to darkness, the moon to blood, and so on. All these signs indicate the Lord manifesting himself and working in history, revealing his sovereign purposes. I think that's important to see. So what is meant by final days before the final day of the Lord? We hear that here Luke um, talks about this in Luke chapter 21, verses 7 through 28. He actually talks about four stages of that time, a period of persecution of, and of testimony of the disciples, as reported in, in Acts, destruction of Jerusalem, 70 AD, the time of the Gentiles, Luke ch chapter 21, verse 24, and the return of the Son of Man in judgment, accompanied by cosmic signs, meaning, meaning uh, really significant changes in the environment. So this period described in Acts, it, Jesus, um, first speaks about in Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 19. And this would precede Jerusalem and time of the Gentiles. Uh, basically, many scholars believe that Luke and Acts are written after the fall of Jerusalem, so that Luke's readers were living in the time of the Gentiles, because Jerusalem's fall uh, was certainly one of the cosmic signs to accompany the end of time. So we're living in a time of Gentiles. So, for the apostles and for uh, us today, we're living in the final 
living in the final days. Does that mean Jesus will come back next week? We don't know that because he said we don't know the time or the day. But we can say that with the time of the Gentiles, we are living in the final days. That those days could be shortened in our time or a next generation or who knows when. Um, but we're to live in these final days serving the Lord's purposes in our life and our families and our churches. Verse 21 says, Everyone who shall be saved calls on the name of the Lord. Again, that's a language that speaks of the Lord uh, acting and delivering men and women in the Old Testament. Now in Jesus, the risen Jesus, Jesus is Lord and he's delivering men and women from the tyranny of sin. Let's take a look. Peter's argument from Scripture that Jesus is the Christ. This is verses, chapter 2, verse 22 through 32. So we'll move this through quickly. uh, Peter talks about how Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit. He works signs and wonders. He's put to death, but is raised up by the power of God. He he even says that he was put to death uh, by the elders and the the chief priests and so on. So we see uh, this is something that uh, Peter uh, takes time to declare the basic gospel message of, he says here, verse 23, this man delivered up by the set plan and foreknowledge of God who killed, you killed, using lawless men to crucify him, meaning the Roman government. So what's Peter doing here? First of all, he declares that Jesus is the Christ, verses 22 through 24, the promised Messiah. He is the Lord, uh, meaning that he fulfills all the plans and purposes of God for his people through the covenants, the prophecies, the law. And he is Lord. He's Lord of every uh, constitution, every parliament, every country, every nation, every government, every leader. And and the Lord God worked mighty signs and deeds and wonders through him, like Moses in the Old Testament. But, of course, Jesus is greater than Moses. Uh, Peter goes on to say that this was the knowledge and plan of God and that he would be delivered up to death, which is also part of God's plan. But he was raised up from the dead. In fact, Peter uses Psalm 16 to help uh, enunciate that more clearly. We'll come back to that in a moment. Um, but I think it's important just, just to see that Peter wants people to know that this Jesus whom you put to death is raised up and what you see in here is the fruit of his outpouring of his spirit at the right hand of the Father. So Peter takes time to talk about the empty tomb. Now Luke would disagree with the statement we sometimes will hear today that if the tomb was not empty, some people would say it would not affect my faith at all in Jesus if his bones were found in the tomb. But for the Christian faith, that is not really acceptable. The empty tomb is is a a critical and essential sign of Jesus's resurrection. Human beings uh, are not souls who inhabit bodies, but they're but animated and thus uh, ensouled bodies. We like to say body and soul. Uh, It's not a soul in a body. We're body and soul. Being raised from the dead didn't mean just the the continued existence of the soul, but also the human being, soul and body, is raised as well. This is part of what Peter's argument is from, as he refers to Psalm 16, uh, quoting that uh, in his argument in his preaching. So we see then that to find the tomb empty, in other words, no bones of Jesus, is is critical to the Christian faith 
it rests on the eyewitnesses that Jesus has been raised from the dead and people saw him alive and risen. So verses 26 through 28, um, because you, uh, quoting again back Psalm 16, because you will, you will not abandon my soul to another world, nor will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. So uh, again, you fill me with joy in your presence that Jesus is raised on the third day, a sign that uh, the prophecy is that Jesus would not be corrupted at all. So it's a fulfillment of Psalm 16. Okay, so lastly, verse 32 is in chapter 2. The empty tomb is, is a necessary sign of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, although it, in itself, it doesn't necessarily lead people to believe. Remember, we believe on the apostolic eyewitness testimonies of those who saw him alive. They're witnesses of him alive. Okay, so chapter 22, verses 33 through 36, we just uh, kind of fix, finish up this section, and then we see Jesus, Peter says he's exalted the right hand of God. He received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father and poured it forth. Um, again, quoting extensively from the Old Testament. So, Peter's argument is that Jesus is Lord. There is no one parallel to him. He's the Christ, the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. And he goes on to say that the fact that he's pouring out the Holy Spirit and these charisms, these gifts of the Holy Spirit is indicative that Jesus is alive and risen. So through his atoning death and resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit becomes possible for everyone who repents of their sins, puts faith in him, is baptized, and calls upon the name of the Lord. So again, Peter finishing up um, and in verse 36, basically saying God has made both Jesus, uh, made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. The word for Lord is keros in the Greek. Uh, it's, it's the sacred name in the Old Testament, sacred name of God, Yahweh. Um, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is Lord. Now, Lord was a title used for Caesar. It meant divinity. So the Christian confession is that Jesus is Lord, that, meaning that Jesus alone, not Caesar, is Lord. Who is Who are we give absolute loyalty and submission to? Not Caesar, but Jesus. And so to say Jesus is Lord is a confession of the allegiance to a higher authority, um, a higher authority, as a, uh, and that's oftentimes part of what why the Christians were persecuted in the early church. Okay, so um, <clears throat> to confess Jesus is Lord then, to say he's my savior, my king, I place my life under his authority, my whole destiny belongs to him, to say that uh, with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength, um, that's not just simply an intellectual statement. It's a statement that comes from experience of the Lord alive and risen in your own heart. This is part of what the Holy Spirit wants to bring to us, is to bring us to the absolute conf confidence and certainty and conviction that Jesus is the Lord. He's alive and risen. And the Holy Spirit wants to bring us into that experiential encounter with Jesus. We call that today the baptism in the Spirit, which means uh, there's different ways to understand that term, baptism in the Spirit. And... Uh, um, one of the ways to understand it, it's a release of the charisms and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in a new way is given to us in baptism and confirmation. It's a fresh release of the Holy Spirit in our life that brings with it charisms. Also, another 
um, kind of variants of that interpretation is it's a new sending of the Holy Spirit in our life uh, uh, in which he brings charisms to help us for a new season, a new time in our life. Uh, still another version of that is that the, the baptism of the Spirit brings with it not only charisms like tongues and prophecy and healing, but also brings with it uh, just a, a, a deeper insight, revelation, awareness, consciousness of Jesus as the Lord, as the Son of God, conquers sin and death and the evil one. So again, uh, however you want to call this grace and however you want to define what its results are, the key thing is that we come away with a experiential awareness and, and um, encounter with the risen Christ with a conviction, a joy, and certainty about him that leads to deeper prayer, witness to him, doing the works that he did, and so on. So, so we, I want to finish up uh, our t the whole session with uh, verses 42 through 47. And I just simply want to talk about what the early Christian community was like. Luke summarizes for us what was typical of the early Christian community. Um, verse 42 through 47, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the communal life, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers. So a couple things here, what makes up, uh, you might say, uh, a parish life is that there's teaching the apostles. This is foundational. This is teaching that is uh, um, about what God has done through his son Jesus, how that, was how that was prepared from the Old Testament, how God answered the dilemma of sin through his son Jesus, uh, the significance of the Paschal mystery, the dying, the rising of Jesus, but then also the teaching of Jesus as applied to our life today. So that's a key aspect of parish life is the teaching of the, uh, the, the apostolic teaching. The second is communal life, which is fellowship. Um, and this is, um, this is how we share life together, sharing faith, sharing life together. Um, this is not only encouragement and support, but it's also accountability. It's also calling forth. It's also um, just providing and watching over one another in love. The third is the breaking of bread, which is the Eucharist. And the fourth um, prayers together, which are prayers outside of the Mass, is the gathering of the Christian community to pray. Uh, and um, at this point, uh, before the early Christians were um, put out of the, of the synagogue, they were certainly gathering um, to pray at different hours of the day. So those four elements, teaching the apostles, care for one another, breaking of bread and prayers, really constitute a significant part of what parish life is meant to be and how we enter into that parish life. Uh, the whole idea of a, a, a brotherhood, sisterhood to one another, caring for one another's needs, celebrating joys together, supporting one another's in sorrow is meant to be part of the Christian life. It's meant to be significant of what we are. Um, and that we gather for prayer outside of the Mass is also a significant part. Notice, though, the blessing that comes upon the early Christian community, signs and wonders. Uh, the, the community outside of the parish um, respected deeply the, um, the, what was going on in the community. So Luke even refers to it as they had the fear of the Lord, which meant they put they recognize God's holiness and his sovereignty amongst the people there um, they were believers who had they were together they had things in common which meant that they shared 
resources with each other, material resources as well as spiritual resources. So they were not isolated from one another in any sense of the word. And that leads us to how much we need to build this kind of community in our parishes today. In itself, it is a powerful witness to the work of the Holy Spirit and to the fact that Jesus is alive and risen. And that's something that practically has to be built. So what's meant when we say the church is apostolic? <clears throat> it means, it says, the early Christians devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles. The Catechism states in 857, paragraph 857, the church is apostolic because she's founded on the apostles in three ways. She was and always was built on the foundation of the apostles. Witnesses chosen and sent on mission by Jesus himself. Secondly, with the help of the Holy Spirit living in her, that teaching of the apostles is kept from age to age. It's called a deposit of faith. And thirdly, she continues to be taught, sanctified, and guided by the apostles today through what we call the College of Bishops, which is in union with Peter, assisted by priests, and so on. So um, that apostolic witness is a key way that the truth of the Lord gets passed down from one generation to the next. Last thing we want to say, verses 46 and 47, is they met in the temple area, they broke bread, they uh, praised God, um, which meant they probably broke, had shared the Eucharist together. Uh, they gathered in people's homes for fellowship and meals. They praised God together publicly in the temple area, um, and so on. So what do we see here is that a vibrant parish life, if you would, in the first century. Uh, this was typical of the Jerusalem church. Um, and so generosity was a sign of the Holy Spirit working among them. Fellowship and communio of charity towards one another was a sign. Signs and wonders, gifts of the Spirit were signs. Apostolic teaching, of course, the Eucharist being the heart of the gathering, but prayers also outside of the Eucharist. All this were signs and demonstrations of the Holy Spirit at work as Luke summarizes what early Christian communal life looked like in a culture that was anti-Christian in so many ways. How this is something that we want to see captured today. So let's conclude our study by praying. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, Acts 1 and 2, the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would restore in our day, in our parishes, the kind of communal life together that's found in the book of Acts so that we may be a vibrant parish community that demonstrates to the world watching upon us that Jesus Christ is alive and risen. He's at work in history. He's changing lives. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.